Uh, we've been sort of following the life of Jacob. And now in chapter 37, the focus shifts towards his children uh, in, a, in a more intentional way. Uh, you'll notice this in, in verse 2 as we read. There's a heading that these are the generations of Jacob, and these are the generations of dot, 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 has been a kind of marker for major transitions in the book all throughout Genesis. Um, you know, the chapters are a medieval invention. So, uh, so it was a, it's a long book, and this was kind of a, a, a literary pin in there that you would know that this is a, a major change. So let's pick up in the beginning of chapter 37. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojourning in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of other of his sons, because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Now Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, hear this dream that I've dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood, stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brothers said to him, Are you indeed to reign over us? Or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then he dreamed another dream. Behold, the son said to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun and the moon and eleven stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you've, been, that you've dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. Now we're going to skip ahead a little bit. The older boys get sent out further afield to graze uh, the, the sheep. And eventually Jacob, or Israel, uh, sends Joseph out to go check on them. And there's kind of, he stops at one place, they're not there. He finds his way eventually to where they're at. And so we pick up in verse 18. They saw him from afar, and before, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say to a, that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will say uh, what will become, and we will see what becomes of his dreams. But when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of the, their hands, saying, "Let us not take his life." And Reuben said to them, "Shed no blood; throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him, that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father." So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty and there was no water in it. Then they sat down to eat, and, looked up, they, and looking up, they saw 
a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead, with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh, on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, what profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. Then Midianite traders passed by, and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes and returned to his brothers and said, The boy is gone, and I, where shall I go? Then they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in the blood. And they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, This we found. Please identify whether it's your son's robe or not. And he identified it and said, It is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned his son many days. All his sons and his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, No, I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, this begins a very long story. Uh, we'll have to be a little bit selective and <laughs> picking up all the pieces because it's, uh, it's very detailed. It goes on. But, uh, but the story of Joseph is one that is so helpful for us. Um, it's one we learn if you're in Sunday school as a kid, and it bears more and more fruit the more we reflect on it. So let's pray that God will work through it. Father, we pray that you'd speak by your word. We pray that your spirit would help us to see how this story applies to us. Most of all, Lord, we would see how you are faithful, even when we are not. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. My favorite recurring character in the show Parks and Recreation is a guy named Jean Ralphio. Uh, those of you who are fans of Parks and Recreation uh, will know that this is a character who's, uh, who's the fr- a friend of one of the main characters, Tom. And, uh, and Jean Ralphio comes from a lot of money. And, uh, and it's also Hatch's schemes where he gets more money, he inherits money, he, he's kind of falling into money all the time, uh, and, and also blowing a lot of money all the time. Uh, so at one point, he, he decides, along with Tom, to launch a, uh, an entertainment company in their small town um, called Entertainment 720. They just doubled 360, because why not? Uh, and, and they just blow all this money. They're just handing out swag to everybody all the time. I mean, every kind of crazy thing you can imagine. Uh, at their offices, they, are, they, they literally have the petty cash in a clear toilet on the, in the middle of, the, of this place. And they're just, they're just blowing money all over the place. Uh, and everything about John Ralphio is about bluster. It's about looking, making it look good. And it's easy to see characters, characters like that and see their pride on full display. 
uh, and we laugh at it because he is a buffoon. It's a lot harder to see pride in ourselves. Uh, because we may not do those sorts of things. And yet, and yet, pride is such a deep problem. We may not be as nakedly image conscious as somebody like John Ralphio. But we are all concerned that we look good, that we can think of ourselves well. Uh, Of course, you know, we're in a social media age now in which that is pretty normalized and a lot of people are pretty unapologetic about curating their image. In many ways, we're encouraged to do that. But this isn't really a new problem. I mean, back in 1979, when the year I was born, a, uh, a famous sociologist, Christopher Lash, wrote a book called The Culture of Narcissism. Uh, in 2009, uh, a couple of uh, uh, sociolo- uh, sociologists and a psychologist, I believe, Gene Twang and Keith Campbell, wrote a book uh, based on research they had done back in 2006. So this was before social media was re- even really existed. And even they were recording that by their data, one out of four college students agreed with the majority of items on a standard measure of narcissistic traits. And nearly one out of 10 Americans in their 20s and one out of 16 of any age had had experienced symptoms of narcissistic personality disorder. In other words, pride is a big problem for us. We think about ourselves all the time. Now, it's not just an American problem. It goes back, as we'll note in a minute, (laughs) to the garden. But the issue is that pride deceives, pride disappoints, and pride devolves. It deceives, it disappoints, and it devolves. The main character, of course, his pride is on full display. Uh, 17-year-old Joseph in this story now, Joseph is the son of Rachel, and if you've, if you've followed our story or you remember uh, having read through Genesis before on your own, maybe, he is the son of Rachel, and Rachel is the one that Jacob really loved. Uh, he's also married to Leah. We talked about this and all the problems with that <laughs> in a previous sermon, but you know, as it is, this, that's the, how that family ended up. And it's no mistake, of course, that, that Jacob really loves Joseph more than the others because he loved Rachel more than the others. Uh, jo- Joseph's also younger. Uh, Rachel just didn't have children until late. So all the other boys, the, there's 10 other boys. Then she has Joseph, and then even later than that, has Benjamin, who, and she dies giving birth to Benjamin. That was in the story we read last week. But, uh, so Benjamin's apparently very young at this point. But Joseph is old enough to kind of be out there with the other boys, but still the younger. And of course, he's a tattletale. We read about that right off the bat. Um, in verse 2, he comes back and he's, he's telling on, <laughs> on the older kids and what they're out, they're out there doing. Uh, but, you know, the, the narrator makes no, makes, you know, misses no words about the fact that Joseph is Jacob's favorite. 
He tells us that in verse 3, and then he's given this coat of many colors. Um, and the coat of many colors is significant because in the ancient world, dye for clothing was very expensive. Uh, most people looked pretty drab walking around in the ancient world. Most people didn't have dyed clothes. That's not what you would wear most of the time. So, uh, if you did have something that was dyed, it was very precious to you. And so, to have something that was made with many different colors, that was chic. You know, that was like top of the line. And so, you know, you can tell what's going on in this family, right? The one kid shows up with this really fancy gift from dad, and all the others are like, what are we? Not that it was a mystery to them, but that, but that coat becomes a kind of symbol, right, of their father's favoritism. Uh, and of course, there is a tragedy written in that, right, that we, we know from Jacob's childhood that his parents played favorites. And so he's actually reiterating the same problems that his family had. But what, what is sown in Joseph is a narrative of self-importance. And that's, in fact, what he gathers from the dreams that he has through verses 6, six through 9. We'll talk about them more in a minute. But the funny thing about these dreams is that they are, they are true or they will be true. If you know how the story ends, Joseph will end up being the one who delivers his family who will come to prominence in Egypt and become powerful and all these, all these other things. We'll, we'll get to that part of the story in a bit. But it is true. The, 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 the dreams that he sees will become true, and yet, and yet the way that that truth is utilized in his life is distorted by his pride. Rather than keeping it to himself, rather than asking, what do I do with this? He's just going around telling his brothers. I mean, these are obvious dreams. These are not great mysteries. What does this mean? It's obvious to everybody as soon as they hear it. And so, you know, Joseph is bragging to his brothers. Even the truth in his narrative of self-importance, even the things that are true get distorted. Uh, They get used. So, Pride in this sense deceives us, and this is how it's always been. If you go back to the Garden of Eden, that is the appeal that Satan makes to Adam and Eve, is you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. The appeal is to their pride, is to make the story about them. In other words, pride gives us a kind of deceptive narrative that are, where we, start, we become a kind of the main character, and everybody else plays a kind of supporting role. So instead of God being the main character, we are. It's like, in, here's the thing though, when, when that happens, okay, you know, I mean, but I'm myself, right? I can only think in my own head, and you think, well, that, that's fine. Uh, how, you know, how bad can that be? But it's a little bit like, you know, any kind of action movie you see. 
and maybe especially superhero movies, right, where buildings are getting destroyed in, in cities. It's like, what about the people that were in that building, right? You know, like that all gets forgotten about. You know, all the bystanders that would almost certainly be injured, and you know, in massive numbers in, in any of these kinds of movies, that all just kind of gets forgotten about, right? Because we're focused on the main character. See, because the deceptive narrative leads to a deceptive action, or actions, I should say. Because we start to think in terms of like the things I've got to get done, because my life is supposed to go this way, right? I'm supposed to be successful. I'm supposed to get the things that I, that I think I need. So I can, you know, I can fudge the truth here. Or, you know, I, I know, you know, I know I'm not supposed to look at these things, but, you know, it's, it's going to be fine because I'm having a bad day. You know, th- this, is what, this is what we do on the road all the time. Well, I'm in a hurry, right? So I'm going to gun it, and I'm going to cut off people. Now, the funny thing about that, right, is like, the minute someone does that to me, I'm like, who do they think they are? Never mind, I might have done it the day before, you know? <laughs> but because we're caught in our own head, in our own narrative, and they're caught in their head, in their own narrative, we do, we're willing, it's, there's, a, there's a remarkable number of extenuating circumstances in my life that let me consider it okay to treat other people the way I shouldn't treat them, the way I would be unhappy with if I were treated that way. That's what pride does, right? It's a, so even things that are true about us start to get used in ways that are destructive, that give us permission to treat others the way we know we shouldn't. And look, religious people are sometimes the worst about this. And in the church, it's so easy to tell a narrative that at least we're better than those people out there. Which is almost never true. I mean, whenever we look at any kind of like societal statistics, the statistics in the church are almost always identical. <laughs> and we tell ourselves, oh, well, we're better than that than those people out there. Or we think that we at least know better than those people out there. We think we have it figured out. We think we have the secrets in place. And the first thing we're forgetting is the first item of our faith that we are bought by the blood of Jesus. Not by our own efforts not by our own wisdom, but by His. And in that regard, the de- nothing could be more opposite to the character of God than the deceptiveness of pride. Because God sees things as they are, and yet is humble. And of course, this is most obvious in Jesus Himself. In God 
who took on flesh. I mean, the very act of taking on flesh is a humbling of God. Jesus is described any number of times as being meek, as being willing to give, of humbling himself for us. He doesn't need us, but he gives himself. And the irony of this, of course, is if there's one person that the story is really about, it's God. And, and God is fully aware of that, that he is the most significant thing going. And yet, and yet, he gives of himself for us. That's one of the paradoxes of the, of the gospel, is that on the one hand, God is the most important thing in the universe, and on the other hand, he puts his own comfort, his own ease aside for our sake. He doesn't buy into the deceptions that we buy into that, well, if I'm this important, I can do all these other things. Instead, in recognizing his importance, he gave of himself. Little wonder then that humility and meekness are words and, hum, you know, humbleness or, you know, all the synonyms for these come up over and over and over again in the Bible. Psalm 34 tells, uh, says, my soul makes its boast in the Lord, you know, boasting in the thing that's the most important, let the humble hear and be glad. To boast in the Lord and to be humble. So, pride is deceptive, again, in contrast to the character of God, but it also disappoints. Notice the dreams, okay? We, we mentioned them in passing. But the first dream is about, you know, these sheaves of grain that are getting, you know, they're just binding up grain. That's, that's all they're doing. And, uh, you know, and one, you know, the one stands up and the sheaves that the brothers were all collecting all bow down to it. Simple enough. There's, this, there's, a, there's a dream that all the stars are bowing down. Uh, there, there's even, there's kind of a hint here uh, back to the promises that Abraham and Jacob have had about the descendants being like the stars in the heavens. And so, but all of them are bowing down to Joseph. <laughs> so again, it's true that that is what will eventually happen. But what Joseph thinks in his pride is that he understands how he will get there. He believes, obviously, that it is an ever onward, ever upward trajectory. Again, his father has encouraged this way of thinking, uh, no doubt. But he has dreams of his greatness, and he thinks he knows exactly how he'll get there. I'll just start telling my brothers. And they can start to get in line with what's going to happen. They have no intention of getting in line with that, right? <laughs> of course they don't. Why would they? But he thinks they will. All that comes crashing down, though. And, of course, his pride brings out the pride of the brothers. Who do you think you are? I mean, not only are you one of us, you're the youngest. 
which does mean so much when you're little, right? <laughs> you know, when you're the, the younger you are. But you know, you're the youngest. What do you, wh- who do you think you are? So his, another, his pride activates their pride. In their scheme, we'll talk about that in a, more in a minute, but it, even though it morphs, eventually it leads them to selling him off to what no doubt they think will lead to his death at some point. So everybody ends up disappointed. Joseph does because, he, you know, his world is fundamentally altered, right? I mean, objectively, he goes from being in a fairly wealthy family into slavery. But subjectively, his own sense of himself has got to take a giant hit. I and mean, we'll, we'll pick up with him in a couple weeks. But, you know, imagine you think you've got it all figured out. Maybe some of you actually don't have to do a lot of imagining about that. You all have it all figured out. And then everything comes crashing down. You know, likewise, the brothers think that they've removed the impediment to their father's love. But do they gain it back? No. They end up being disappointed too. And they've gotten rid of him. They've gotten rid of Joseph. But has that really fundamentally altered their relationship with Jacob? No. See, whenever we're following through in our pride, it does end up eventually disappointing us. Because we think we know the story, because the narrative is fixed in our head, we think we know all the twists and turns. Again, maybe Christians are the worst about this because we know the promises. We know that we will be sanctified, that our hearts will be completely changed. We know that we will be raised from the dead and that we will see God. And so we think, well, that should just be an easy slope, ever onward, ever upward, right? Like that's just how it's going to go. And it's never how it goes. Like, ever. Never, ever, ever, ever. Because, because and the New Testament in particular is so clear about this, right? God always brings trials to test our faith. And indeed, even if He didn't, we still live in a fallen world, right? Where the sin of others our own sin and the general miseries of what we've done to the world will catch up with us in some way, shape, or form to some degree or another. They always do. And yet, because we think, oh, this, but the story is about me achieving things, me getting greater approval, me getting more control of my life, we think we know all the twists and turns that it ought to that we ought to expect. And so we're disappointed. And we think we can manipulate others <laughs> because, we, because we already know what's going to happen, because we're all so confident in it, even if we won't say that. We think we can manipulate others. We think because this is how it's supposed to go, that they'll fall in line. 
and it rarely works. It really doesn't work very well, does it? I mean, you know the trope in like, so, you know, I don't know how many sitcoms, right, where somebody meets someone they're attracted to, and then they tell some big lie that's like about a major part of their life because they didn't want to make it awkward in some moment or whatever, but they, they're lying about their name, they're lying about their family, they're lying about, you know, the failure is baked into the plan here. <laughs> it's baked into it. Eventually, the, you know, if, if that were ever going to become serious, everything's going to be known. And it's going to be known that you're lying. And of course, that's almost inevitably what happens in every one of those situations, right? And pride is like that. We think we can manipulate people. We can get them to fall into line with our story, and we can't. And even on those rare occasions that it kind of works, it still never works out the way we think. And even when you meet people who are master manipulators, I mean real sociopaths, they always go down a road that eventually escalates and they're found out. That's how it goes. And in this regard then, maybe this is a place to kind of ask ourselves how our own vocabulary or our more popular vocabulary kind of maps onto this. You know, decades ago, uh, people were really concerned about self-esteem. That was a, that was a big word. Now we talk a lot about self-care, so that's more action-oriented than, uh, than self-talk related. Uh, although, but we talk about the flip side. We talk about narcissism a good bit. And some of that stuff's helpful. I mean, uh, there, you know, there was a lot of, like, pop psychology self-esteem stuff that probably wasn't super helpful. <laughs> but, you know, and, you know, but, you know, self-care is generally a good idea. It's important. Uh, it's the category of narciss- narcissism and narcissists is helpful in a lot of ways. But the biblical language of pride and humility is particularly helpful and is difficult to replace because the issue of pride focuses on the disposition of the heart. It's inescapable when we use the word pride to think about myself and to be self-critical and to have to reflect on what it is that really motivates me. In the same way, when we talk about humility, we're talking about a disposition of the heart that is not a fixed thing, but is always needing cultivation because it slips away so easily and never so quickly as when we're convinced that we've arrived at humility, (laughs) that it seems to evaporate. So that language of pride and humility gets us also to a question of my place in the world. Again, back to that way in which we narrate our lives. Are we at the center? Are we the most important thing, the most important person on the scene? Or is God the most important? Do I get the privilege of sharing the stage for a little while with Him? 
Or am I chewing the scenery? You know, that, that language of pride and humility, however helpful these other, this other vocabulary can be at the times, gets us to focusing on who we think we really are, for good and for bad. And again, unlike pride, the humility of God in sending His Son does not disappoint in contrast to the failings of our pride, which always lead us down roads that disappoint, the humility of God achieves everything that He wants. Because Jesus is effective in His humility, in the meekness of His heart, He accomplishes exactly what He set out to do. To save us from our sins. To deliver us out of our shame. Indeed, in His meekness, He died and was raised up for us. And because of His resurrection, we know that even the things we have not yet seen are guaranteed. And even now has sent the Spirit. So that the very wisdom we live by is defined by Jesus' humility. James puts it this way, in, in, in the epistle of James in chapter 3, he, he contrasts wisdom that is from above with wisdom that is from below. There's an interesting passage, I won't read all of it, just one verse here though. He asks this, he says, who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. That is to say, Let him show his works in the humble character of Jesus. And humility never disappoints. I mean, because you, if you act towards others in humility, it doesn't mean you will always get what you want. But of course, that's half the point. Is that in humility, we realize that other people are going to do what they want to do. I can try to convince them to do something, but I'm also not bearing the burden of having them to make them conform to my ideas for how they ought to live their lives. You see how pride is involved in that, isn't it? But when we act in humility, when we speak gently with others, we can lay that aside. And yes, not all of them will follow it. But it will be so much more effective because it's not about forcing them to live the story I think they ought to live. So pride deceives, it disappoints, but it also devolves. And by that I mean that it continues to degenerate the people that it touches. You can see this with Joseph, because Joseph's pride, like I said, activates his brother's pride, but it actually becomes something much more calculated and vicious along the way. And we see this with Reuben and Judah. Reuben is the oldest brother. Uh, Judah is the fourth 
we read about Simeon and Levi who were in between in another passage, and we won't go back over that. But Reuben, and we see in verse 22, what, does something that sounds like it's generous. He says, oh, don't, don't, let's not kill him, right? Let's not kill him. But, that, but we're, instead, right, we're told that he's doing this in order to restore himself to his father. And you might remember from the passage we preached on last week that Reuben had slept with one of Jacob's servants, uh, who was, was also his concubine. And there was that little line in that passage uh, that he heard of it. And the obvious implications being that, and it's proven out here, that Reuben is on the outs with his dad, that he is the oldest and should be the one that receives the blessing and receives all, the, you know, all, the, all these other things, the better part of the share in his inheritance, and yet he's on the outs. And what he wants is to do something that will somehow re-ingratiate himself with his father. And that's why when he, he apparently steps away for a while and he comes back after Joseph's been sold, and what does he say? The boy's gone and I, where shall I go? You know, now what? This was the best hope I had of fixing things with my dad. In other words, he was using Joseph in his own schemes. In Judah, in verse 26 and 27, Judah, who we're going to hear more about next week, Judah comes up with a really cruel plan. In verses 26 and 27, his plan is to sell him off, and this is what they end up doing, sell him off as a slave. And that way, they don't have to be guilty for his blood. So, I, so on the one hand, he's posturing as if, you know, what he's going to do is more righteous. But of course, the fate that they're sending him off to, you know, they know will likely be terrible, if not kill him along the way. You know, so, he, so they're able to wash their hands of it and yet still consign him to a horrible, horrible fate. So it brings, out, it brings out something even worse in these brothers than he ever could have guessed. And of course, it crushes his father at the end. You know, we don't know how long Jacob stays in mourning, but the, you know, the clear impression is for a very long time. And he will cling, when we, when we see Jacob again, he will be clinging to Benjamin, the remaining child of Rachel, with everything that he's got. It's a pretty sad picture of Jacob, a man who's clinging to the one thing that he's got left from Rachel. See, pride erodes, it erodes us and it erodes our neighbors. The, the, more, the more proud we are, the more distrust and mistrust we sow. Because the more that you're committed to yourself, the more you're willing to sacrifice others. 
And the more people see it, naturally, the less they will trust you. Right? I mean, we can see this written large in some pretty grand stories, right? That pride in that way ends up becoming pretty fragile and falls apart. If you look at, you know, World War II, Nazi Germany had taken over almost all of Europe. And in the course of a year, lost all of it. Why? Because no one could tell Hitler that anything was wrong. That the more power he gained, the less anybody wanted to tell him that any, there were any problems. And it, fell, it falls apart. We're seeing the same thing in the pride of Vladimir Putin right now. And we don't know how that story will end. But it, recently in an article by uh, the political scientist uh, Francis Fukuyama, he, was point, he pointed this out. Specifically the fragility of the system that they have. And he says this, he said, we saw images of Putin sitting at one end of a long table with his defense and foreign ministers because of his fear of COVID. He was isolated, or he was so isolated that he had no idea how strong Ukrainian national identity had become or how fierce a resistance his invasion would provoke. He similarly got no word how how deeply corruption and incompetence had taken root in his own military, how abysmally the modern weapons he had developed were working, or how poorly trained his own officer corps was. Because no one wanted to tell him. I mean, those are the big, big stories, right? But you know this, the more arrogant a person is, the more difficult they are to deal with. And no one will be around them left, you know, will be left around them except those who want to feed the delusion. Because they will either drive out people who won't feed them, or people will just get so fed up with that that they're like, I don't want to stick around for this. And again, that's kind of, those are the big stories, right? But I mean, some of you have worked for bosses who were just in it for their own pride. I have. There was, you know, when I was in the Navy, there was one ranking officer over me, who was so nakedly about his own advancement. He was the most difficult person to deal with. And do you know what it bred? It bred dishonesty because people didn't want to really tell him. They were trying to work things out on their own so they didn't have to give him bad news. They were overworking the sailors that were under them because they didn't want to have to give him bad news that something might be delayed or something wasn't going to happened just like they thought it was going to. And there was a palpable sense of relief when that person left the ship. That's how it works. It can happen, you know, in a workplace. It can happen in our homes. You know, where our pride becomes the biggest hurdle that our family actually has to deal with. It can happen in friendships. We all know we've had that friend who's difficult, right? It's all about them all the time. What do you do? Usually they end up driving most people out of their lives. And again, in contrast to pride and its destructiveness, is the good news of Jesus, who in his humility gave himself 
And in his humility and giving himself, he accomplished everything he set out to. And even now, the humility of Jesus at work is what builds the church. Because the church is never stronger than when it is meek. Because Jesus said he's not building a kingdom of this world. And by world, we don't, of course, we're not really particularly talking about materiality. We're talking about a qualitative thing, the way of the world. His kingdom doesn't operate like that. And in fact, when people ask him, what does it mean to be great in his kingdom? What does he say? If you want to be great, you've got to be the servant of all. And the church is actually weakened when it operates out of pride, when it operates deceptively, when it operates in order to be able to boast about itself, when it is politicized, when all of these other ways of pride sneaking in have taken over, the church is more fragile. Its own witness is weakened. Its effectiveness fades away. Some of you have seen that at work probably in churches. And we might be able to keep the PR campaign going long enough to think, boy, we're, we're going to get, we got it all figured out here. But the minute we think we've got it all figured out is the minute we're admitting to our own pride. But Peter, in 1 Peter 5, says it this way. He says, rather, clothe, your, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And that's what the fruit of God's work is. It's His own character to teach us humility. That we are not our own, but we're bought with a price. That the one that we hope in is not ourselves, but in the Lord Jesus, who gave himself for us. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you do not respect our pride. But instead, what you call us to is humility. And we thank you most of all for the humility of your son who emptied himself of all of his claims to power and glory and took on flesh for us. Lord, would you teach us the humility that comes through Jesus? Would you teach us to see that our story is not our own? But instead, the thing we're invited into is the joy of a much more profound, much more beautiful, much more compelling story. The story of your love for us. Father, give us the confidence and the courage that comes with real humility to love you and to love our neighbors. We ask in Christ's name. Amen.